This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. Jamila Rizvi is a best-selling author, sought-after public speaker, podcast presenter and gender equality advocate. Jamila has also been named as one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence by the Australian Financial Review. She lives in Melbourne with her husband Jeremy, five-year-old son Rafi and, as you would guess, has an amazing story to tell and does so in a way only someone with the amount of channeled power and charisma that Jamila has. You might think life has been a walk in the park for someone like Jamila, which if you've ever listened to any of the episodes of The Curious Life, you'll know what's coming. Someone with hurdles to overcome and is living it now with grace and charm. And you'll meet Jamila Rizvi next. Jamila, thank you so much for joining me today on The Curious Life. I'm so thrilled to be talking with you today. And I just wanted to say a big thank you to you for your amazing speech at the Women's March because I just was so moved by that and I was so honoured to be represented by you as a woman and I just thought it was such a powerful speech and I just wanted to say thank you and to ask you what that experience was like for you. Oh, well, firstly, thank you so much. That's very generous. That speech was a real moment in time I think I remember walking to the women's march that day and being surprised by just how many people were there I think the diversity of the people who were there the number of men who were there in particular was really heartwarming but at the same time I think it was the most respectful rally I've ever been to everyone was there with purpose and everyone was there with a very somber purpose mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't about exhibitionism it was about making a point and I think there was a real element of solidarity to that experience and it was a it was an absolute privilege to be one of the people who got to address that crowd amazing and you I mean you've done some incredible things in your career and one of the things that I love reading all about the things you've done, some of the things, I mean, I thought I knew quite a bit about what you get up to, but there's so much more. And you're one of those people that seems to like to get their hands across all different kinds of mediums. Like you're not one thing, which I think is fantastic. And I think it's kind of the modern career these days that women and and anyone are able to actually try their hand at lots of different things. You know, you're an author, you're a podcaster, you're a quality advocate, you're all kinds of amazing things. So did you actually start out thinking this is kind of where I'd like to be in my life? Did you have an an idea of where you wanted to go? Uh, It certainly wasn't my plan when I left university, for example. I I assumed I'd end up in working in politics or working in public policy. That was sort of my interest coming out of university. And then I fell into media and originally was working full-time for a big media organisation and really enjoying that work and fulfilled by that work. But after I had my little boy, it, it was more about making it work for me and making my work life work for me than it was about 
making my work life push ahead or get ahead or whatever that might have been. So I think I've really built a career around what interests me, what excites me. I do very little that I'm not interested in anymore. And then also thinking about what works with my life and and what's possible to mean that I get still spend a good amount of time with my son, a good amount of time with my mates, that I've got that headspace to do the creative work that's important to me and also the advocacy work that's important to me. And I recognize that's a huge privilege because being able to make decisions like that, that are about what I want to do and what's fulfilling instead of what's going to pay the bills is a rare position to be in. And I'm really lucky in that regard. There's so many areas I wanted to leap into, but one of the reasons that we're here talking today is because of your new podcast, The Secret Life of Carers, which is so right up my alley as a therapist. Anything that's shedding light on the mental health experience I'm into, but this is a new perspective. We haven't really heard much about the experience of carers who are looking after people with all kinds of different challenges. So can you tell me a little bit about where this idea came from? Yeah, so Carers Australia got in touch with me around this concept and I was just thrilled to be a part of it. I think caring is something that we very much stereotype in this country. We think about it in a really narrow way and we we usually assume it's about someone who is paid rather than related to the individual being cared for coming in and doing physical caring work for someone with a physical disability. And of course that absolutely happens and it's a really important part of the caring equation, but the care economy is so much bigger than that. And most caring is actually unpaid. And a lot of caring happens for people with mental health challenges rather than those with physical disabilities. And I don't think that is something that we've reflected in the media particularly well. And it was such an incredible few days getting to meet with these carers who were resilient, who were problem solvers, who all had these unique stories and experiences. And while they found what they did really complex and challenging and goddamn hard sometimes, just hard and tough to get through the day, They also knew that what they were doing was important, that they were making life a little bit easier for someone for whom life is pretty tough a lot of the time. And I think for a lot of them, it was a really important acknowledgement that what they do is caring, that there's a name for what they do, that they're not just being a good brother or sister or mom or dad or partner, that it was actually a lot more than that, that there is a caring role that not every sibling or parent or partner does play. Yeah. And it's a, it's a huge undertaking, isn't it? And And a lot of people do it because they love the person that they're caring for. And maybe it's then something that is overlooked in terms of the significance of that role and the impact on those people themselves. What was the most surprising aspect of uncovering that area for you? I think it was probably the skill level that so many of these untrained informal carers provided the insight which they had into the psychology of the person that they both love and care for the understanding of those tips and tricks and tricky ways around things and how to respond to that individual's brain and how it might be working when they are experiencing an acute period of mental illness for example they were so clever and there was so much ingenuity that went into how they performed that caring role it wasn't just the 
doing of things. It wasn't just the physical, I'll do your grocery shopping for you, or I'll sort out what's going on with your bills because it's just too much right now. Or I will drive you to school and sit out the front of the school and make sure that you stay there and get a full day schooling. It wasn't just that physical work. It was that emotional work, which I think was almost like a tightrope at times for some of the people that I spoke to. And I was absolutely in awe of, of what they could do. And most of them with with no formal training in the area. Amazing. As you said, when you think about carers, you do think about the practical day-to-day. You don't think about the nuance and all of the things that you can probably only know by being close to somebody and knowing how things shift and change for them and when things might be looking a little bit hairy and that maybe they need a bit of extra support at that time. So, you know, I think it's brilliant that you're talking about this and sharing these stories because there'd be so many people who may not even be aware that they are classified as carers and they're just living day in, day out with somebody they love and trying to find the balance in terms of what they can do and how much input and how important their role really is. Was there anything that you learned that would be helpful for people to know in terms of accessing support, like for carers who might need support themselves? I think going back to what you just said then is important. The first thing is asking the question of yourself, is what I am doing caring? And I would say for more than half of the people that we spoke to for The Secret Life of Carers, the first time they acknowledged themselves as a carer was when the podcast got in touch. Wow. And it really was news to a lot of them. And I think once you've made that step, I mean, carers are capable problem solvers who know where to get help and where to access information, right? That's the very nature of what they do. So I think once you recognize yourself as that, it's about taking that step of self-care and saying, yeah, I have an obligation. I have a duty. I have this really important work that I do every day looking after this person in my life, but as well as looking after their needs, I need to look after my own. And this is not the average relationship that someone experiences. This is something beyond that. And that means that I need to make sure that I've got a network of people around me, that I've got people I can talk to, that I have got perhaps someone professional who I can talk to and lean on, that there are a whole lot of resources through Carers Australia and other organizations that I can draw on to support me through what's going on in my home life. Because looking after someone full-time, often someone you live with who experiences severe mental illness is trying and it's draining and it's difficult. And while it is hugely rewarding and when you love someone, you wouldn't have it any other other way, you know, you're not going anywhere, but at the same time, it's important to be able to acknowledge that, yeah, this is, this is tough sometimes and that you need to be able to help yourself before you can help somebody else. Yeah. That is such an important point. Cause I think when we're looking after people, when we look at somebody in our lives that might seem like they need the support, we so quickly overlook our own needs and they become, you know, the focus of our energy and our time and our care. And we just forget that, as you said, it's like fitting that oxygen mask in the plane, you know, you've got to put it on yourself before you can fit it for anybody else. And, you know, I think that's fantastic. That conversation is coming to light to give people permission to seek support and be okay with asking for help themselves. And what was it like for you? Because I know that you've been kind of on the other side of that, where you've had your husband helping and caring for you when you went through a really difficult time. So what was that like for you being on the flip side of that? 
Yeah. So I experience a variety of significant health challenges that are the result of a recurrent brain tumor and the removal of which has caused a whole lot of damage in my brain, which means being alive is a lot harder than it used to be. And my husband is not just a key supporter in that fight to stay alive. He is the key supporter. My family and my friends, my sister, my parents are wonderful, but he's the one who lives it. He's the one who is here at night when things go wrong. He's the one who I call. He is the emergency contact in my phone. So, yeah, I think there was a there were some real moments of crossover and recognition, I suppose, when I was talking to carers of people with severe mental illness of recognizing that, yeah, there's actually a lot in common. A lot of that caring role is emotional, whether or not you're dealing with someone with a mental illness or a physical illness. So much of that caring role is actually emotional, preparing someone for what's coming, taking care of their appointments, doing that administrative bit, as well as the the physical caring that my husband does, which is helping me with medicines or getting me to hospital if something goes wrong. So I, I think I was perhaps even surprised a little by just how similar the experiences were. And I think that caused me to really reflect as a result of those conversations for the Secret Life of Carers podcast. I I sort of did have that reflection of how society responds to physical and mental illness so differently. My husband is applauded and lauded by the people around him who know what he does is really tough and they know how important the role he plays keeping me alive is. I don't know if that would be the same if I had a severe mental illness. I'm not sure his role and how difficult that would be, would be respected in the same way. So it did sort of leave me thinking about how we respond to serious physical and mental illness as a community and how we really do have a hierarchy of illness. And we have illnesses we take more seriously than others, regardless of the horrible and challenging implications of both. Everyone has their own way of coping when confronted with truly terrible news and the aftermath. How Jamila navigates through is next. Although mental health has become part of the public discussion and it's very much talked about now, way more than it ever has been in history and normalised in a way that it never has been before, yet it still remains quite an undercover part of our illness tapestry. There's so much for people who are suffering from any kind of mental illness, even as minor as a little bit of anxiety that comes here and there. And a lot of people don't talk about it. And our partners are the ones that might know that, you know, we're losing it at the kids because the anxiety is flaring up or they find ways to work around us. And it's not talked about as openly as it would be, as you say, if it was a physical illness. So I wonder what the next 10 years is going to look like in the mental health landscape. We are talking about it more, but is it ever going to come to the fore in the same way. Look, I'm really optimistic. I think we've made huge strides in the last five years, even five to 10 years. You know, I think back to my university days, which was sort of in the 2000s and 
mental health wasn't a conversation we were having. You know, occasionally maybe it was, but I don't think it was something that was at the forefront of our minds. It was something that was, we we perceived it to be affecting very few people and it wasn't something that we talked about openly. Whereas now I meet with university students and school students who really honest and uh, inclusive with discussing their mental health. They check in on the mental health of everyone, not just those who suffer from mental illness. They think about one another's mental well-being. They start conversations with where's your head at? So I do think there's a shift. And even amongst my, my generation, that kind of millennial generation, I think we're having a shift as well. I think people are more comfortable disclosing mental illness. And I think employers, friends, family are better at receiving and responding to that news. By no means are we perfect. By no means does that apply to everyone. But I think the strides we've made over the last five to 10 years suggest that over the next five to 10 years, we can not only acknowledge mental health and include people with mental health challenges better, but we can start to see severe mental health challenges just as worrying and sometimes more worrying than physical health challenges. One of the women I spoke to for The Secret Life of Carers, and it's one of my favourite episodes, is uh, with a woman called Meredith whose daughter has severe mental illness. And she says at one point in the podcast that it would be easier if her daughter had cancer because then other people would get it because this young woman is so unwell that the chance of her dying from her mental illness is as high as if she had cancer. Her mum is as worried about her survival as if her teenage daughter had cancer. Mm -hmm. And yet when she talks about it with friends or colleagues, no one recognises it with the same severity. Yeah, that is such a brilliant point. And, you know, in my work, I work a little bit in private practice but also at a school working with kids all the way through up to 15 And so often the conversation is, oh, they just need to get over it or they just need to stop thinking about themselves. They need to find something else to focus on. And it's just so unhelpful. Nobody's choosing to be that unwell. Nobody's choosing to have their lives so badly railroaded by an illness. So, you know, that's that's really, really a sad and interesting point from Meredith. But I do have hope as well. And I think, as you say, the conversation is changing and people are being more conscious of what can actually affect people. And I wonder if, you know, you'd be willing to share a little bit about your experience as well. I know you've talked about, your, well, the brain tumour and I think you've had two operations, but I'm interested in what that does to you from a psychological perspective because anyone who imagines that conversation with a doctor I was talking with Bryony Benjamin actually about her book and her experiences. And for me, just even imagining that conversation with a doctor invokes so much fear and panic. And I just wonder how you actually sit in that moment and in the moments afterwards, alone with your thoughts in the weeks and the days that follow and, and how you manage it. Yeah, I think um, everybody responds differently to truly terrible news. For me, I think there was a real fight or flight response. I panicked (laughs) and I was in a state of panic and that highly anxious panic state for probably a good week or two after finding out that I was unwell. It was a huge shock. And I think it took me quite a while to get my mental health under control And I was someone who was diagnosed with very few symptoms. So physically I was feeling 
feeling well. I was feeling fine. I was living life quite normally. So there was nothing sort of holding me back physically. But having said that, I think those few months before my first brain surgery, between finding out and the the actual surgery were the hardest of any point in my illness. They were the hardest bit. And physically I was fine, or at least I felt fine. It, it was the emotional and mental challenge of coming to terms with what had happened and what might happen and what might be the consequences of the news that I'd had and how my life might shift. And can I say all of the versions I came up with, all of the many versions of how my life might change, none of them apply. I think we we try to imagine what life's going to look like mm-hmm. in the future or after serious illness or after an operation or after radiation, after chemotherapy, after disability, whatever that might be. And your imagination never manages to hit the truth. You know, none of us, none of us actually get to the truth of, of the crux of what's going to happen to us. So a lot of that is ultimately wasted energy, wasted fear, wasted panic. And I think what would have helped me would have been just being able to look one day at a time and not get too far ahead of myself. But I've got a brain that likes to get a long way ahead and likes to plan and likes to think about the future and likes to feel in control. And so that lack of control is a huge shock. And I think managing through that, I think you only get through something like that if you've got people around you who understand uh, to the extent that they can what you're going through, who are there for however you feel or however you're going to behave on the whatever day, because sometimes it's cheery and happy and sometimes it's pretty dark. And I think it's also being willing to look for and accept that professional help where you can looking for psychologists, therapists, counsellors who can support you to talk about and think about what you're inevitably thinking about anyway, but do it in a really healthy way that moves you forward rather than gets you stuck in a kind of cycle of, of panic. Yeah, absolutely. And for you, you had your little boy at that time, didn't you? So he was he was probably part of that fear and that conversation. And what would be your advice to people who might be unwell or just beginning a diagnosis journey and have kids to think about? How do you manage that part of it? When a parent becomes unwell, I think we worry about our kids first and we worry about the impact on them and how it's going to shape them. And there is no question that a period of serious illness for a parent is a horrible thing for a child to go through. And I wouldn't wish it on any kid, but they will also learn from it. And I genuinely believe that my little boy is more emotionally intelligent, more empathetic, more kind and caring than he would have been if I hadn't been sick at this age. And he shows incredible emotional intelligence for a six-year-old. He is caring and warm and worries about other people and how they're feeling and how he can help in a way that most six-year-olds don't. And I don't think that was something that was inherently him. I don't think that was going to happen regardless. I think that is the result of having grown up with mum being sick from the age of two and a half Mm -hmm. and having been up close to some of the rough stuff. We've tried to shield him from as much as we can, but sometimes it's not possible. And he is really understanding. He's really flexible. So yeah, it's going to be really tough on your kids. I'm not I'm not downplaying that at all. It's going to be really tough on your kids if you become significantly unwell, but they will also learn from it and they will rise to it. So so trust them. Trust them as well as giving them the right support. And then the other piece of advice I'd give to someone who had been diagnosed with a really serious illness is there has never been a better time or a better place in the history of humanity to be sick than in Australia. 
in the era of modern medicine. If I had been born 50 years earlier, I wouldn't be alive right now. If I had been born 20 years earlier, it'd be a question mark. I have had access to incredible practitioners, to surgeons, to endocrinologists, to uh, ophthalmologists, to radiation oncologists, whoever it might be, uh, who are so incredibly skilled and who have built on one another's knowledge and who are willing to collaborate and work together and build on decades of medical experience and research to be able to deliver the best possible shot for me at getting through. And Australia's medical system is second to none. It is extraordinary, the doctors that we have. Our training is the best in the world. And if you're going to be sick, if you were going to get sick anyway, none of us wants to be here, but it's a pretty good time and it's a pretty good place to be sick because your chances are good. Mm, Very encouraging. Finding that silver lining in all of that scariness I think is really important. Does this woman ever sleep? How she fits it all in is nothing short of amazing. And how she has overcome the challenges life has thrown at her is nothing short of inspirational. That to come on the Curious Life podcast. I've heard you talk in other interviews about the fact that despite having the surgery and that technically being a success, it actually has ended up causing you more issues that continue to be a bit of a battle today. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that and and how that impacts you, again, from a mental health perspective, thinking that it's going to be over having this surgery and then having to deal with so many things afterwards? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, I think our brains necessarily focus on the most urgent, most big, most unusual moments when you become sick. So you do, you think about surgeries, you think about chemotherapy, you think about these big event type moments. You don't think about the day-to-day. You don't think about just living and getting by afterwards and how that might be different. So for me, my brain tumor grows in a really densely populated part of the brain, which means by virtue of just cutting it out, even if your surgeons have done a magnificent job like mine have, that causes damage to the structures around that tumor and what you have to tear that stru- that tumor off. Um, and it's the same with radiation. Even outstanding, pinpointed, careful radiation has to hit some of the other structures around where that tumor is in order to help get rid of it and help eliminate it. So for me, that means I live with a series of significant disabilities now, some of which are life-threatening, some of which make being in the world difficult and some of which make me look very different. So all of that has been a challenge. For me, I have found some of the hardest parts being looking different and not seeing the person I used to see in the mirror. And that has taken some serious adjustment and I think is still taking some adjustment And the key with that kind of mental health challenge, I think, is not to rush it and to recognize that there isn't an end point that you're trying to get to. There isn't a point where you go, ah, now I've got it and I'm okay with everything and I'm fine. It's a bit like happiness. The challenge is the pursuit of it, not the getting there. It's not a destination. You don't land there and stay there forever. So I try my best to take it day by day. And some days I feel great. And some days I don't feel great at all, both mentally and physically, but I think the further I get away from the more acute period of my illness, the more happy days there are. It's a very complex thing, isn't it? And and I think, as you say, people focus, we would all imagine focusing on the big events just to get through that and then it's going to be over and life goes back to normal. But it's really about adjusting to a new normal, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, a new normal looks different for everyone. And I think a new normal can mean shifting things from how they used to be in your old life and making work and family and how you live work in a different way to make it more manageable. And that's definitely something I've, I've fought against. I think I've spent a good two years trying to live the life I used to live, Mm -hmm. but with a body that's not up to it. And, you know, I think I'm finally starting to accept that some things have got to give and some things have got to shift because my set of capabilities and abilities are different to what they used to be. And for someone who likes to have their life in control and who likes to plan and be you know in control of every next step I guess that must have been really tough yeah I think it's a work in progress absolutely and I don't like giving up on things that I that I wanted but I've learned to listen to my body more and to um, meet my body where it's at and know I know now that if I push my body beyond its comfort zone I will pay for it that I'll be paying for it for a few days, if not a few weeks after it. So I've got to make really calculated decisions about when I push it and when I just let it be. And in terms of your little family, how's your young man doing now, seeing that mum's at this place now where she is? And I guess he probably hopes that things are better than they were before. How's he doing? Yeah, look, he's been magnificent through all of this. And I think that's a real testament to my to my husband who put a lot of his time and energy while I was unwell into making sure our son was as uh, well adjusted as possible to what was going on. He was pretty little when I first got sick. So I think he he doesn't have huge memories memories of it, but he knows that I had limitations and he's comfortable with that. He knows some days that, you know, getting out of bed is tough and he's got to pay transformers on the end of the bed and that's how it is. <laughs> and some days I'm happy to go and kick the footy and go nuts with him down at the park. It just depends on the, on the moment. And I think he's pretty good at accepting that. Yeah. And you know, that doesn't sound too different to what happens in my house. There are some days where I've got energy to run around with my two little maniacs. And there are other times when I just don't. And they're so adaptable. Kids are more resilient than we are in so many ways. And it's probably a good thing he was so little when all of that big stuff was going on. So what is coming up for you next? Because I know we've got the podcast and that is uh, The Secret Life of Carers that's across all podcast platforms. But what else is coming up for you? Yeah, so Secret Life of Carers has been a huge success and we've loved working on it. And so I hope we'll be able to do some more work with Carers Australia and see what we can do in that in that space to continue giving a voice to people who perhaps don't normally get heard and whose experiences aren't normally platformed. I'm working with a group called Future Women who are part of the Nine Network, who are an extraordinary crew who provide leading leadership and development training for women as well as an online community and content for professional women so that's a whole lot of fun and then I'm making a bunch of podcasts and trying to write a book and trying to get some family time in around that (laughs) and all while in lockdown which doesn't make things that yeah indeed (laughs) (laughs) how are you guys coping with the current restrictions and lockdown Oh, look, I think I'm based in Melbourne, so I feel like we're pretty good at this now. It's tiring and it's boring and it's mundane and the same as everybody else. We're sick of every day feeling like the one before, but at the same time, we have somewhere safe to to be and somewhere safe to be away from this virus. Both my husband and I are really privileged in the fact that we have jobs that we can do at home and not everybody has that. And we've got work. 
right? There's a huge number of people who don't have work anymore either. So yeah, I mean, it is rough. It is boring. If you get me on the wrong day, I will rant till the cows come home. But we're talking on a day where we've just seen the experience of women and girls in Afghanistan, where we're a week out from a devastating climate report. Uh, there are a whole lot of, people, lot of people who have it worse than us. So I don't think we've got much to complain about. No, you're right. Absolutely right there. And what are the things that you do for self-care? How do you look after yourself? Sleep. (laughs) Um, I love sleeping and I'm a really good sleeper. It's one of my superpowers. No matter what drug they put me on uh, and they say, oh, this will disrupt your sleep, it doesn't. Sleeping is the one thing I'm good at, which is very lucky for someone who's on as many medications as me. I... I'm a people person. I am the very definition of an extrovert. I absolutely get my energy from the people I love and care about. So spending time with my mates is a form of self-care. It refuels me. It fills my cup, makes me feel better. At the moment, that means a lot of time on Zoom and a lot of time on the phone and a lot of walks around the neighborhood with local friends. And then I suppose it's just the little stuff, right? It's the little stuff. It's hanging out with my kid and baking muffins or spending time with my husband sprawled on the couch at night and watching Netflix where it's a moment that you won't remember and it's a moment that doesn't go down in this family photo album, but it's those little moments that actually make you feel better. Yeah, absolutely. And staying connected, particularly in this time when so many Australians are locked down, is so important. And I think we forget for a lot of people, there's screen fatigue where all a lot of people are working from home and having a lot of meetings in the way that we are on Zoom. And that can be really tiring and mean that people dip out a little bit of social interactions. And I think it's so important to remember to keep those things up, even if it's just a group chat or whatever it is to stay connected with each other and keep sharing laughs and trying to keep that connection going. is just so important. So I'm glad to hear you're doing it. That's great. <laughs> oh, look, I think, um, I think catching up with people in lockdown is a little bit like exercise in normal times. It's easy to not want to do it and feel like you can't be bothered, but you never feel worse afterwards. So true. So true. You just got to get off the couch. All right. So I know um, as well as The Secret Life of Carers, you're also on The Briefing so people can find you there. Where else can people find you and see what you're up to? Yeah. So The Secret Life of Carers podcast, obviously, The Weekend Briefing. I'm on every Saturday with an extraordinary human being who I get to interview. Uh, The Anonymous Was a Woman podcast, which comes out twice weekly at the moment, is a book review podcast. So if you're a book nerd, that's a good place to go. And then you can find all of my books on Booktopia, both those for adults and for kids. And hopefully I'll have a new one for you sooner rather than later. Oh, very exciting. Can you share anything about that book? Yeah, I'm working with my friend and a fellow writer called Rosie Waterland. We're writing a book about physical and mental health. So a lot of what we've just been just been talking about and the intersection of the two, and it's in its early stages, but it's an exciting new project. Wow. Sounds right up my alley. I will be keeping an eye out for that one for sure. Well, Jamila, I just want to thank you so much for your time. It's been so lovely chatting with you. And I know you've got a little one to keep homeschooling. So I'm going to let you get back to that. But thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing so much of your story in all the interviews that you do, because I know it's so important for so many people. And 
if somebody listening isn't unwell yet, maybe somebody in their life is or will be. And so it'll be pertinent for everybody. So I really appreciate it. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We would love it if you left us a rating for this episode. And catch up with Yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on Instagram and Facebook at The Curious Life Podcast. And if you're looking for a fabulous podcast editor or producer, use ours. Julie Reynolds will turn your audio lemons into audio lemonade. Check out audiolemonade.com.au.